we're enjoying the fall season. It is beautiful out there, and it's good to be here with the family of God. We're in 1 Peter, 1 Peter, so you can open your Bibles to 1 Peter. Um, as you do that, take a look at the people around you. This is just an awkward moment. Um, take a look at the people around you. Where have they been this week? Where have they walked? What have they experienced? I imagine some of us feel like strangers in the world. Some of us are the only disciples of Jesus at home. Some of us feel alone at school or in the workplace. Some of us are experiencing the challenge of a new job. Some of us have lost our jobs. Some of us experience the joy of new relationships. Others are walking through some very strained relationships. Some have experienced the inexpressible joy of Jesus in the midst of of suffering and trial. And others are actually traumatized by what they have seen in our city this week. We live in the real world. And as we live in the real world, there are many voices speaking to us. There are many saying, hey, I have life for you. I have what you need. Where do we feed our souls? It may be the news media. It may be social media. It may be pop psychology. It may be reality TV. It may be the sports entertainment industry. There are many voices out there clamoring for our attention. So how should we live in the real world? I want to start with the story that happened 4,000 years ago. Abraham, he was living on the plain of Shinar in the Ur of the Chaldeans. In that region, the Tower of Babel was built. People trying to dethrone God and make the earth their own. It was in that region, in that place, that Abraham first heard the word of the Lord. And the word to him was, go from your country and I will make of you a great nation. And through you, every people on earth will be blessed. He set off from Ur of the Chaldeans. He became a sojourner. He wandered. And as he wandered, that word stayed alive within him. How? Well, turn with me to Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, verse 17. Leave a finger there in First Peter. Romans chapter 4, verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of of many nations. And then down to verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So Abraham, he journeys, he worships, He walks in the presence of God. He gives glory to God. And as he does that, his faith grows stronger and stronger. He hopes against hope that God will fulfill his promises. And he walks fully convinced because the word of the Lord is alive within him. 2,000 years later, 
um, Peter writes to some disciples that are in the northern regions of what is today modern Turkey. He writes from a city that he calls Babylon. It's not actually Babylon. It's a code name for Rome. Peter is imprisoned in Rome. He's writing from that city to disciples in what today is modern Turkey, and they feel like sojourners in the world. They've come to faith in Jesus. When they heard the gospel, they were born to a living hope. The word of God spoken to Abraham was being, it had been actually fulfilled in their lives. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again. The gospel was proclaimed and it was proclaimed to the people living in the northern regions of modern Turkey and they came to faith in Jesus. They were born to a living hope. So Peter, he writes, in the first 12 verses of his letter, you were chosen by the Father from before the foundation of the world. You have been born to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, you are secure. You are guarded by the power of God each day. You have experienced this inexpressible joy in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your suffering. Your faith is real. You've been privileged by a revelation of the Messiah. What the Old Testament prophets longed for, you've tasted it, you've seen it, you've experienced it. The gospel was preached to you By the power of the Spirit, you understood and you were born to new life. Well, how should they now live? Peter goes on in verses 13 to 21 with some very clear counsel. He begins with the core, the essence of their walk in Jesus. He says, set your focus on God. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Live with your minds fixed on the final goal. Live with your eyes fixed on the one, the only one, God himself. Be holy like him in the real world. Walk in awe of God because you've come to know God as your good, good father. And you know that he's also your judge. And remember that your salvation cost Jesus his very own blood. Walk with faith and hope in God alone. So the first word to those disciples is very, very clear. What's the key investment they need to make in order to grow as disciples? Well, first and foremost, they need to fix their eyes on God. And that's the word for us as well. First and foremost, fix your eyes on God. If you want to grow as a disciple of Jesus in the 21st century, put your hope in God. Fix your eyes on him. Love him with all that you are. Does the Spirit have more to say to us? Well, I believe he does. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. We'll read from chapter 1, verse 22, down to chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For... All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk 
that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The main point of this message is very, very, very simple. The main point is this. Since, as disciples of Jesus, we have been born to a living hope through the living and enduring word of God, love one another deeply and long for the word of God passionately. Very simple. Love one another deeply because you've been born to a living hope and long for the word of God passionately. The clear command there in the first paragraph that we read, verses 22 to 25, is love one another. And love there means love one another agape style. That means unconditionally, in a committed way. Love one another earnestly. That means fervently, intentionally, deeply. Love from a pure heart, Peter writes, without hypocrisy, sincerely. So this love is not, you know, that warm, fuzzy feeling that you have when you watch a romantic movie or you read a romantic novel. Oh, it's so nice. That's not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about a committed love, a Jesus-like love, a self-giving love. That is to mark our relationships in the family of God. 1 John chapter 4 talks about this. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Down to verse 21. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So the command to love is very, very clear. The question is, what is the source of that love? How would you and I ever generate that kind of love? Well, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, So you as a disciple, you were set apart to love when you came to faith in Jesus. You heard the gospel, you heard the word of truth, and you chose to obey. You chose to turn from sin and turn to Jesus as your Savior and Lord. When you did that, you were reborn. And as you now follow Jesus on a daily basis, you continue to obey the truth. You continue to turn to Jesus. And you realize that the very purpose of your rebirth is that you might live as God would have you live. That you might relate to others as human beings actually were created to relate to one another with love. True love. Peter writes, end of verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. The language in the New Testament around rebirth is really interesting. It is uh, phrased in different ways. Born again. Born of the Spirit. Made us alive together with Christ. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He brought us forth by the word of truth, born of God. So what's the connection between being born of God, born again, and loving one another? 
verse 23, he writes, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. There's a contrast there between human seed that produces mortal, perishable life and divine seed that produces eternal life. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you have not been rehabilitated, you have been resurrected, born to a living hope. That's a spiritual rebirth. Through the word of God, you have been born of God. God is now alive within you by the spirit. You've been born to a living hope. The living God within you is love. Love is the essence of your new life in Jesus. The new birth generates this new life of Jesus in you. It makes it possible to love. Love flows from the spiritual reality of God abiding in you. I came to faith at uh, 19. Prior to my conversion, the hallmark of my life was self-centeredness. It's very clear for me today. In my relationships with people around me, I was growing more and more cold toward family, toward friends, to those around me. My life was about me. I was self-focused. I was dead internally. I had lost all hope. I couldn't find meaning for my life. And then one day, I heard a man preaching from Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And from chapter 2, he talked about being justified by grace through faith in Jesus alone. That I could never work my way into heaven or find the way without God. He went on to chapter 5 and he talked about freedom in Christ. That I could only be the person that I was created to be in Christ. Only Christ could set me free from everything that was binding me. He went in to talk, then talked about life by the Spirit, that we could only follow Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And suddenly, it all came together for me. The pieces fit together, and I surrendered my life to Jesus, and I was reborn. A few weeks later, strangely enough, I noticed that I was seeing people around me, that I had actually begun to care about other people. First John chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You see, love is the hallmark of new life in Jesus. To be born again is never just an individual matter. It is never just a matter of accepting a set of truths about Jesus. Faith in Jesus will always lead us into relationship with other people. Pastor Willie said this week, he said something that I think is really true. He said, faith is always personal, never private. So our faith in Jesus is personal. It's about a relationship between me and Jesus, you and Jesus but it's never private. It will always lead us to love for God and love for other people, principally the family of faith. So what's the second key investment of a growing disciple? Love the family of God intentionally. Love the family of God intentionally. At Willingdon, there are many opportunities to love others. 
You may learn to love another person in a mentoring relationship. There are mentoring relationships for men and women. Small groups, fellowships, discovery groups, church choir, the lobby, the cafe. There are many opportunities to see others and to love them. If we're followers of Jesus, then we will take the command seriously to love the family of God intentionally. When Judy and I lived in Sao Paulo, the only family that we had was the church. And maybe that's true for you here in Vancouver. The only family you have is this family of faith. When you don't have any other supporting structures around you, then you realize the importance of the family of God. And we need to love each other. That's why I asked you to look at each other at the beginning and say, oh, hmm, I wonder where the people around me have been this week. I wonder where they have walked. I wonder what they have experienced. I want you to stand up right now. Could you stand? And I want you to do something which may be a real act of faith on your part. Um, I want you to pray a prayer of blessing over the person that's next to you. Maybe you can do this in twos or groups of three or four. And you just pray that the person next to you will experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That the person next to you will grow in their love for God. That they will experience family at Willingdon. And sometimes this can feel really awkward, but I would encourage you to just do this in faith. We need to be family for one another. Maybe English isn't your first language. I know what it's like to pray in a language that is not English. And so sometimes it just demands some faith. And God will help you. God hears your heart. But I'd ask you just in this moment to pray for the person next to you, okay? Go for it. So, Father, I just thank you for the gift of being able to enter your presence together. I thank you that we can lift up before you our brothers and sisters and bless them. Thank you for the gift of prayer. I pray your blessing on each one here. May we walk as your people, as family to one another. Thank you, Jesus, that you're present to teach us. Amen.
So when you come to church, you can sit down now. When you come to church, come here expecting to bless. You know, we come here wanting to worship. We come here sometimes to receive prayer. We come to hear the word of God. Pray this prayer. Lord, I'm going to church today. Uh, I want to bless someone. I'm not going to leave until I have the opportunity to bless someone. And God will give you that opportunity. It may just be an encouraging word. A smile. An encouragement. An opportunity to pray. But come wanting to bless someone in the name of Jesus. And Jesus will answer that prayer. Let's go on. Um, in First Peter... Chap, uh, verses, chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, Peter, he quotes from Isaiah 40. The, the verses talk about grass withering, about the flower falling. Now in the fall season, we can imagine what this looks like. Why would Peter quote these verses from Isaiah 40? Well, the word through the prophet Isaiah was originally given to the Israelites in Babylonian exile. They, in the 6th century, the Israelites were in Babylon, and they were oppressed by the Babylonians. They were losing hope. They were discouraged. They were far from home, wondering whether they would ever return to Israel. They were wondering whether God would keep his promises. What does God say to them? Well, listen to Isaiah 40. I'll lift out some verses. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Those are the words that Peter quotes. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Why do you say, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Pastor Ron read some verses earlier during worship about waiting for the Lord. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll be like Abraham, growing stronger and stronger in their faith. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They will soar. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That was the living, eternal word of God for the Israelites in exile, 6th century BC, and it was the living word of God for the disciples of Jesus in what was at that time Asia Minor, today modern Turkey, people being tested, tried, tempted to turn from God, tempted, tempted to listen to the voices in their society, tempted to run from the family of God, the church. You see, they were living under the Roman Empire. It was all they had never, ever known. That was their heritage. The Roman Empire at that time appeared to be permanent. Like it would last forever. It was powerful. It was glorious. The most powerful empire in all of history. What's the word saying? Well, disciples of Jesus, the Roman Empire will pass. (laughs) 
Like all things human and created, it may appear powerful and glorious and permanent, but it will pass. Like the Babylonian Empire, which was the most powerful and glorious empire in the 6th century BC. And it passed. It disappeared. All things human, all things created, they pass. Empires in no way hinder the purposes of God. That was the living, abiding, eternal word for the exiles in the 6th century BC. It was the living, abiding word for those that felt like strangers in the 1st century AD. And it is the living and abiding word for us today in our age. What have we lost in our age? We live in an interesting time. There are many that say that we live in a post-truth era. Truth, absolute truth, is something of the past. We're beyond it. In North America and Europe, we talk about being post-Christian. That means that believing in Jesus is something that we have left behind. We've moved beyond Jesus. Will our age abide forever? Is the way that our society thinks what will endure? Will it stand the test of time? The preaching that we are post-truth, post-Christian, we have left God behind, we are beyond him. Well, the word for us would be the word of God The gospel has come to us and it is living and abiding. It is the truth of God. It is the eternal word of God. We have been born to a living hope that will never be extinguished. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So if we have been reborn by the Spirit, if we have been born to a living hope, then we have been born to something eternal. And as we walk through our days here on earth, in the real world, we need to remember, with our eyes focused on God, what is true. And not be drawn into the voices of our society that say, hey, come here, I have life for you. Come here, I have what you need. Jim Eisenhower, when he sent me his testimony there about being healed of Crohn's disease, he included a number of verses. In his email, he included Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He included Hebrews 4.12. The word of the Lord is living and active. The word of God is eternal. It will never, ever pass away. What else would the Lord say to us today? Well, look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Put away. It looks like a, a, an imperative. It's actually a participle. It's, a better translation would be the New, New American Standard Version, which 
reads, therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. That translation, it just focuses us, focuses the key command, the key imperative, which is long for the pure spiritual milk. So the paragraph begins with what we should not feed on. Do not feed on malice. Malice is just an all-inclusive term for ill will toward other people. Don't feed on deceit. That word deceit is to catch with bait. So you get baited by lies. The truth of God helps us discern what is deceit. Hypocrisy. It's pretending to be something that we're not. It's to be false, to be disingenuous. And so the hypocritical person will say, I love, but then will speak evil of the person. Envy, it's to desire what the other person possesses and actually hope for the person's downfall. Slander is to speak against someone, to disparage someone. And sometimes slander is just a well-timed word that insinuates the wrongdoing or the evil of another. All of these sins are committed in relationship, right? They're all committed in relationship. And these vices, these evils, they just sap the living hope right out of us. When these sins are present in a family or in the family of God, we look like a withered plant. We look like a wilting flower. The enemy would have us feed on these devices because he knows that these sins will rob us of everything that God has for us. Thomas Schreiner writes, the sins listed tear at the social fabric of the church, ripping away the threads of love that keep them together. So the question that sits behind chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 is, what feeds our souls? And maybe this week we were baited by conversations that slandered others in the body of Christ. That questioned the intent of brothers and sisters in Christ. What do we do? Well, cut off the conversation, repent, turn your eyes to Jesus and abide in the living hope that you have been gifted with. Don't get stuck! What are we feeding on? I was reflecting on this question this week. And, you know, one of the things that I enjoy doing is watching the news. I watch the news pretty much every day. But it's interesting that our news, the news normally feeds on these sins. Feeds on envy, on malice, on hypocrisy, on slander. I noticed in watching the news that usually the first nine stories are kind of negative, actually quite negative. And then the last story is kind of positive, just to put you to sleep at night with a nice story. Unfortunately, you remember the other nine. But if you feed on the news, if that's your diet, you will become more fearful You will live with less hope. You will trust less. So what are we feeding on? 
We all need to evaluate what we're feeding on. The key command in this paragraph of 1 Peter, the key imperative is long for the pure spiritual milk. That word long, it means to crave, to cry for, to desire intensely. And we can all picture an infant crying for its mother's milk. It cries incessantly. It cries instinctively. It cries eagerly. It knows it depends on its mother's milk. That's to be a picture of our relationship with the Word of God. We crave it. We desire it instinctively. We know that our spiritual life depends on it, no matter how mature we are. The Word of God is pure, Peter writes. It's it's uncontaminated. It's unadulterated. It's without deceit. People in the first century, they knew what contaminated milk looked like. They knew that it produced sickness. They knew about watered-down milk. Interesting thing about mother's milk. The nutrient mix of mother's milk was God-designed to provide exactly the right proportion and form of calories and essential nutrients, antibodies, and other factors important to sustain a normal pace of growth. It contains proteins, fats, carbohydrates, minerals, vitamins, and trace elements. It cannot be replicated. You know, this is one of the amazing things. I've been to societies in different places in the world where people are actually encouraged to not depend on mother's milk to choose the infant formula. That's the deceit of people trying to sell infant formula. And unfortunately, sometimes we fall prey to the lie that there are other places where we will find the nourishment that we need that only the Word of God can provide. When our first daughter was born, she was three weeks old. Judy and I, we went to the mall. Judy left our firstborn in my arms, and she went shopping. Story of our lives. So there I am holding the baby. And our firstborn, she's named Ashley, she starts to cry. And a woman comes over to me and she says, you're holding the baby the wrong way. That was encouraging. And then she said, and you don't have what the baby needs. (laughs) Oh, insightful. But it's true. I would never have the mother's milk that Ashley wanted. Never. I wouldn't have it that day. I would never have it. I could hold her. I would never be able to provide what she was crying for. What are the substitutes in our society for the milk of the word? Our society offers us all kinds of infant formulas, all kinds of substitutes. As I said earlier, the sports and entertainment industry, and I've realized that when I watch a game, it never nourishes my soul. I never come away restored. Social media, you can spend hours on it. It will never restore your soul. Pornography obviously will kill you, but it comes at you as a voice of life. The news media, mindfulness, pop psychology will never feed your soul. 
video gaming. There are so many I could go on and on. But the word of God cannot be substituted. It was designed for us. So long for, Peter would say, long for, crave, the Holy Spirit would say, crave the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. What's the next step for you? Maybe it is just disciplining yourself and reading the Word of God regularly. Maybe you need to read a book that helps you understand how to read the Bible. There's a wonderful book in the Resource Center, The Bible for Life. Understanding how to read the Word of God. The Bible for Life. Pick up a book like that. It'll help you read the Old Testament, the New Testament. Whatever it is, take the next step. Take the next step. What's all of this for? What's it unto? Well, verse 3 of chapter 2. That by it you may grow up into salvation. You see, the disciples that Peter is writing to, they've been born to a living hope. They've been reborn by the living and enduring word of God. Their hope for their eternal inheritance is sure. They know they'll be transformed into Christ's likeness. But along the way, as sojourners... As strangers in the world, they must feed on the word so that they grow in obedience, so that they mature in faith, hope, and love, so that they mature in their love for God and one another. And as they do that, their longing for the word of God deepens because it's life. I was uh, sitting beside a sociologist in Latin America about 15 years ago, and uh, she declared herself to be an atheist. She was talking about literacy programs in Latin America, and she says, you know what? All of the government-sponsored literacy programs in Latin America have failed miserably. The only thing that works is people coming to faith in Jesus, and I don't understand why. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you understand why. Because people that come to faith in Jesus, they're born to a living hope, and then they hunger for the Word of God. So they want to learn to read. And you see evidence of it all over the place. People on buses, subways, street corners, very, very poor people reading the Word, hungry for the Word. Why do we read the Word of God? What do we expect when we, meet, when we read it? Biblical literature is beautiful, isn't it? So you have wonderful stories, the history, it's fascinating. You have beautiful poetry, prophetic words, apocalyptic lit- literature, wild stuff, fascinating. Why do we read it? Do we read it for its literary beauty? Do we read it to just download information so that we'll be more cultured? Why do we read it? We read the Word of God to meet a person. We read the Word of God to meet Jesus. You see, when you open the Word of God in the morning, or if you're on a bus, or in the evening, or late at night, when you open the Word of God and you... The Spirit of God begins to speak to you. Jesus speaks to you. You meet him. That's why you read the Word of God. Because you want to hear the voice of Jesus. And that longing for Jesus, 
As Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 14, it replaces all of the passions of our former ignorance. We realize that all of these passions that we had, all of these places where we thought that we would get life, we realize that it was ignorance because we found true life in Jesus. Peter says in verse 8 of chapter 1, even though we haven't seen him, we love him. And he's good. He writes in verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Grammatically, that's a first-class condition. What that means is they actually have tasted that the, word, that the Lord is good. They know it to be true. He's quoting from Psalm 34. Psalm 34, David is fleeing from Saul. He's running for his life. He's in the land of the Philistines. He's a sojourner. And in his desperation, the Lord speaks to him and he pens Psalm 34. Listen to these words. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who hopes in him. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And saves the crushed in spirit. So imagine being crushed in spirit. And you open the word of God to Psalm 34. And Jesus speaks to you through it. My wife when she was walking through cancer. um, She had a dream. She went to bed. She was asleep. She had a dream. And in the dream, there was a long line of people, and she was at the end of the line. And there was a person coming down the line with a tray full of beautiful fruit. The person came down the line, and when the person turned to Judy, she realized that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, taste and see that the Lord is good. That was the word for the disciples in the first century. That was the word for David when he was running for Saul. It's the living and abiding word. It is the word that is true for us today. The Lord says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you have come to faith in Jesus, if you have been born to a living hope, you know that that word is true. You've tasted that the Lord is good. And because you've tasted that the Lord is good, you hunger for the word. The fruit of having met Jesus is love for God, love for others, love for the word of God. Maybe you've lost your love for the word. Maybe you no longer crave it. I know that in my journey with Jesus, there have been moments when I have not longed for the word the way I should have. But in those moments, I have prayed, Lord, restore to me that longing for your word. And I know it's a prayer that the Lord loves to answer. If you pray that prayer, Lord, I don't long for your word. I don't cry for it. Please do a work in my heart. He will answer. Because the Lord knows that the word is life for you. Daniel M., he's written a book, No Silver Bullets. And in this book, No Silver Bullets, he talks about a study that was done in 2011, a study that was done among thousands of churches, and it was a study about discipleship. 
So thousands of people are surveyed in the United States, in Canada, 30% of the churches were Canadian. And they discovered the marks of a growing disciple. Here are the eight marks. Bible engagement, obeying God and denying self, serving God and others, sharing Christ, exercising faith, seeking God, building relationships, and being unashamed of the gospel. No surprises there. Now what's important for us today is the answer to the following question. What were the key factors that led to that kind of fruit in the lives of these disciples? What were the key inputs? What were the key investments being made? And the study revealed three. Three key investments, three key inputs. Number one, Bible engagement. You want that kind of fruit in your life? Bible engagement. Not just listening to podcasts, but actually reading the word of God yourself and applying it to your life. Number one. Number two, attending worship services. And not watching online church, actually going to church, being with the family of God, worshiping God together, being prayed for, praying for others, hearing the word of God. Number two. And number three, Intentional relationships, small group relationships, moments when you actually connect with other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ. What's the word of God for us today? What are the key investments if we want to grow as disciples in Christ? Well, First and foremost, fix your eyes on God. Love him with all that you are. Secondly, love the family of God intentionally. And thirdly, long for the eternal word of God. That was true for the disciples in the first century. It is true for the North American church. It is true for us here at Willingdon today. Love for God. Love for our brothers and sisters. A longing for the word of God. No surprises. We just need to do it. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. So Father, we do thank you that you in your grace have drawn us to yourself. Thank you for the day, Lord, when we heard your eternal word. Thank you for the day when the gospel was preached to us and we were, by your grace, able to respond and surrender our lives to you. Thank you that we've been born to a living hope. Thank you that you abide in us by your spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that where we lack love for you, oh God, may that love grow. May it be restored. Forgive us for going to other places for food. Forgive us for listening to other voices, thinking that we would find life there. May we hear you, Father. May we grow in love for one another. May we do that intentionally, Lord. Thank you that we... We are a family. What a gift. 
May we grow in our longing for your word. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. May we receive from you, by your spirit, just a craving for your word. May we take whatever the next step is. And so we thank you that you are at work among us. We thank you for gracing us with your presence. I pray that my brothers and sisters would enter this week full of hope because you go with them and will never leave them. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.